Okay, please be seated and turn with me, please, to Luke chapter 7, to the passage we read uh, earlier. Luke chapter 7, verse 36 uh, to 50. Father, we ask that you would give to us the spirit of Jesus Christ, that we would be able to see the, the glory of God in the face of Christ as we hear the good news of the one, good news of the one who came to save sinners and forgive us our sins and cancel our debt. This we ask in his precious name. Amen. Uh, you may well have noticed that kissing is in the news these days. Uh, the head of the Spanish FA is in trouble uh, for kissing one of the Spanish women footballers on the lips. Now, in Spain, as far as I know, kissing on the cheek is a normal everyday greeting. But a kiss on the mouth belongs to a relationship much more intimate than the head of the Spanish FA has with Jenny Hermoso. And I, I, I don't think Jenny Hermoso will be kissing his feet anytime soon. Now, in Luke chapter 7, when the woman... The sinful woman kissed Jesus' feet. You could call it a kiss and tell story. In fact, that might be a good title for the sermon, A Kiss and Tell Story. But that only occurred to me late last night. Uh, because this, this emotional encounter tells us something of the woman's relationship to Jesus, doesn't it? It tells us of Jesus' relationship to her. Uh, and that's the question I want us to think about today. How do you and I relate to Jesus? How do you and I relate to Jesus? And we'll think about that as we look at this passage, verse 36 to verse 50. We'll see three things. To, firstly, how Simon the Pharisee relates to Jesus. Then secondly, how the woman, the sinful woman, relates to Jesus. And then thirdly, how Jesus relates to them and to us. Uh, and that third point is not so much a separate point, but it's going to be woven in uh, with the tapestry of the first two points as we go along. So how Simon the Pharisee relates to Jesus, how the sinful woman relates to Jesus, and then uh, mixed up with those two points, how Jesus relates to them and to us. So firstly then, how Simon the Pharisee relates to Jesus. Simon belongs to the strictest party of Jews within first century Judaism. Uh, he's a Pharisee. Uh, Pharisees wanted to live lives of holiness, of purity, of lives pleasing to God. And there's nothing wrong with that. But somewhere along the line, they had lost sight of the fact that true holiness and living a life pleasing to God is only possible when your life is grounded on the grace of God. It's only possible when your life is grounded on grace. It is the, the living root of grace that gives life to the flower of godliness. Not the poisoned root of grim faces and gritted teeth. So Pharisees, they were religious, respectable members of society, and yet often they were the target of Jesus' criticism and rebuke. Why did Jesus rebuke them so often and be critical of them? Well, the Pharisees, the Pharisees were like surgeons who scrub up in theatre and then refuse to go near the patient in case they get contaminated. 
Not so Jesus. He was scrubbed up, if I may put it like that, scrubbed up by nature, of course, to an infinitely higher standard of holiness and purity than the Pharisees. But Jesus was scrubbed up in order to put his hands on those who were contaminated to heal them. Yes, the physically sick, but also the spiritually sick, those dying with the terminal cancer of sin. Now, we don't know why Simon the Pharisee invited Jesus to dinner, verse 36. Perhaps he was curious. Uh, Jesus was well known by this stage, if you turn back to verses 16 and 17 in chapter 7, after Jesus had raised the widow of Nain's son to life, the people were filled with awe and praised God and said, A great prophet has appeared among us. God has come to help his people. And this news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. And I wonder, was Simon keen to find out whether Jesus was indeed a great prophet? Because he would be thinking, what would the ordinary people know? What would they know about these things? They should leave this sort of thing to the experts, to people like me, Simon. I'll find out if these wild rumors are true. And Jesus accepts his invitation. Notice that Jesus has dinner with Pharisees as well as tax collectors and others. But word got out that Jesus was in town and dining at Simon's house. And it wasn't long before verse 37, a woman who lived in that town heard about it, gate crashed the dinner party and stunned those who were there with an emotional and extravagant display of devotion to Jesus. And she was a notorious sinner. She was someone that everyone in that town knew. And knew what she was like. Knew what she did. What is Simon's reaction? Verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, secretly as he thought, if this man were a prophet, And the way that's written in the original language, uh, the implication is clear. What it means is if this man were a prophet in brackets and he's not. You can tell that from the way it's written in the original. If this man were a prophet, brackets, he's not. He would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. And that tells us something, doesn't it? The fact that Simon says, if this man were a prophet and he's clearly not, it shows you that Simon's starting position was one of unbelief. He did not believe Jesus was a great prophet, never mind anything more than a great prophet. And that unbelief, that preceding a priori or prior unbelief, tells you, explains the lack of welcome, doesn't it, to Jesus? The lack of water for Jesus' feet. The lack of oil for his head. The lack even of a greeting kiss, which was normal in that culture. But you see, what Simon sees happening now, right before him in his house at his dinner party, simply confirms him in his unbelief. This man is no prophet. How could he he let this happen if he were a prophet? Wait until Annas and Caiaphas get to hear about this. You know, the high priest, I'm going to report back, say, this man is no prophet. 
Wait, I tell you what happened in my house? Now we'll come back to the story, which is basically a parable that Jesus tells Simon in a moment or two. But notice this and be warned. As J.C. Ryle has said, it is quite possible to have a decent form of religion and yet to know nothing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is quite possible to be religious like the Pharisees and to know nothing of the grace of Christ. To know, to know nothing of the grace of Christ because you think you need nothing of the grace of Christ. And that's a terrible, dangerous situation to be in. Why? Because it is only by grace that we are saved. It is grace we need to face the day when Jesus Christ returns to judge the living and the dead. What does that expression mean? That expression simply means he comes to judge everyone. Covers the whole of humanity, doesn't it? The living and the dead. You see, Simon, Simon knew something of Jesus. He knew something. He knew something about Jesus. But crucially, crucially, Simon was a stranger to grace. The grace that brought Jesus into this world to save sinners. But then I suppose if you don't think you're a sinner, you will not think that you need saving. But if you think that, if you think that, the Bible says you're a fool. So that is how Simon relates to Jesus. Secondly, then, how the sinful woman relates to Jesus. Let me ask you a question. Are you suspicious of emotion? Are you uncomfortable with displays of emotion? Do you think that is something only for charismatic or Pentecostal Christians? Or maybe you think, well, it's not very British. It's not very Scottish. Well, it's true, isn't it? Artificial displays of emotion are to be avoided like the plague or, a, I've said here, a plane ride with Yevgeny Prigozhin. We should avoid them. There's no place for whipping up emotion or emotionalism on artificially. But if we think there is no place for our emotions in our worship and our service of Jesus Christ, then we are badly mistaken. You only have to think of the Psalms, don't you? And the psalmist pours out his heart, his joy, his loves, his, yes, his hates as well, his despair, his agony, his anguish. And this woman who was widely known as a sinner Approached Jesus, stood behind him. Remember, Jesus was reclining. They didn't eat at tables like this in those days. It was a low table. They lay on the ground uh, on cushions, reclining the feet out this way, the head of the table. So she stood behind Jesus at his feet, weeping, wetting his feet with her tears. She kissed him, poured ointment on them, and wiped them with her hair. And you have to ask the question, what on earth, what on earth could have prompted such a lavish show of love and devotion. What on earth prompted this notorious sinner, this infamous sinner, to ignore the social boundaries, to crash right through the social boundaries, to ignore the stares and the of others? 
What on earth? That's nothing less than the love of God on earth. Nothing less than the lavish outpouring of love that Jesus had already given to her through the forgiveness of her sins. And you see, the story that Jesus tells makes it clear, doesn't it? The woman's love for Jesus was not the cause for her forgiveness. No, her forgiveness from Jesus was the cause of her love for Jesus. Look at verse 40. Simon, Jesus says, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, about 20 months wages, and the other 50, two months wages. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave or cancelled the debts of both. Notice there were no conditions. There was no deal. He simply cancelled the debts of them both. Imagine your bank manager or your building society, whoever, if you've got a mortgage or a loan coming to you and just saying it's cancelled. You think, what? what, what? No, it's cancelled. It's done. Now Jesus asked Simon, which of them will love him more? And Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Simon, you have judged correctly. Now, now make a correct judgment about what is going on here. Make a correct judgment about what is going on in this woman's heart and make a correct judgment about what is going on or not going on in your own heart. You see, this woman, this woman with many sins, and she had many sins, and Jesus knew that. You see that from verse 47. This woman with many sins, she has come to honor me. And show her love for me because her great debt has been cancelled by my even greater grace. The debt she could not pay, the debt she could never pay, has been paid in full by me. And no strings attached. We don't know. We can speculate about what she had heard Jesus say. Perhaps she had heard Jesus say, whoever comes to me, I will never turn away. Whoever comes to me, I will never turn away. Perhaps she had heard Jesus say, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Perhaps she had heard Jesus say that he, the Son of Man, had come to seek and to save the lost, and she knew she was lost. Perhaps she had heard Jesus say that he had come not to be served, but to serve. And give his life a ransom for sinners. A payment with his own lifeblood to cancel the debt of our sins against God. She has heard the gospel. She has encountered the good news of Jesus Christ in the person of Jesus Christ. And she has responded in faith. Now notice that actually because I'm not going to pick it up later. It's her faith has saved her, Jesus said. Not her love. He doesn't say your love has saved you. He says your faith has saved you. She has responded in faith. Her sins have been forgiven. She has been set free from the prison of unpayable debt. Set free so that on that day of reckoning, the day of great accounting, when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead, she will have no worries, no fear. 
She will simply know the love and the joy and the peace that comes from those who know all their sins have been forgiven through Jesus Christ and the grace of Jesus. And you see Simon. Simon, her heart has been broken and melted by the love of Jesus. By God's love for sinners in Jesus. Her heart has been broken and melted by the overwhelming goodness of God. You see, Simon, God is not a God who sits in the sterile scrub-up room of an operating theater, avoiding the dirty, blood-stained, infectious patient. No, God is a God who reaches out in Jesus Christ to save the dying, to heal sin-sick sinners. Sin-sick sinners like you and like me here today and sinners like this woman. That's why she's lavishing her love on Jesus in stark contrast to Simon's bare minimum hospitality. And therefore, Jesus says in verse 47, Therefore, Simon, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. And then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Why did Jesus say your sins are forgiven? Has he not just told us that the woman's love and gratitude uh, was a result of her sins already being forgiven? Well, I think there are two answers to that question. One is a, a, a grammatical answer and the other is a pastoral answer. Firstly, grammatically, when Jesus says your sins are forgiven, this is not in the present tense, but in the perfect tense, the Greek perfect tense. And the perfect tense in Greek means that a past action is having a present result. Or put it another way, that a present condition has resulted from a past action. So it's right to, it's right to translate it, your sins are forgiven, but you could translate it, your sins are forgiven because they have already been forgiven. Perfect tense. Something has happened in the past that applies to the present. So that's the grammatical explanation. But pastorally, don't you see the pastoral power of what Jesus does here? Here is a woman notorious in the town. She is known publicly for her sin. What has Jesus just given to her? A public affirmation. A public declaration of her forgiveness of his forgiveness of her before many witnesses. Just, just think of the value of that for her. Jesus has declared my forgiveness publicly. And the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this? Who is this? Who even forgives sins? Who indeed? None other than God himself, perhaps. And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Go in peace. How do you and I relate to Jesus? In these last few minutes, I've got four things here. Two lessons to learn from Simon and two lessons to learn from the sinful woman. How do you and I relate to Jesus? Firstly, the first two to do with Simon. 
Firstly, don't be like Simon. Don't let your self-righteousness cut you off from the relationship you need with Jesus. Don't be like the Duchess of Buckingham. This is back in the 18th century, so I'm not going to get sued for anything I say about the Duchess of Buckingham. From the story of the Countess of Huntington's, this book that Ian Forbes has given to me, 18th century. Selina, the Countess of Huntington, who was friendly with John and Charles Wesley and George Whitfield, often had members of the nobility, including the Prince of Wales, round to her house to hear preaching. Uh, she and her husband actually used to live in number 11, Downing Street. That was their home uh, before it became now the home of the, is it the Chancellor who lives in number 11 of the Exchequer? Uh, Duchess of Buckingham, it was her husband who built Buckingham Palace. It wasn't originally a royal palace. Uh, the Duke of Duckingham rather built the palace and King George III bought it from him in 1761. How much did you think he paid for Buckingham Palace back then? He paid £21,000 for Buckingham Palace. But anyway, Selina Christian, Countess of Huntington, asked the Duchess of Buckingham to come and hear the preaching of these new Methodist preachers like Wesley and Whitfield. So the Duchess of Buckingham says, I thank your ladyship for the information concerning the Methodist preachers. Their doctrines, their teaching are most repulsive, offensive, strongly flavored with rudeness and disrespect, disrespect towards their superiors. And I quote from the letter, it is monstrous to be told that you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches that crawl on the earth. This is highly offensive and insulting. And I cannot but wonder that your ladyship should relish any sentiment so much at odds with high rank and good breeding. Monstrous to be told that you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches that crawl on the earth. That's the offense of the gospel. But the Bible tells us we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all need to be justified freely by the grace that comes to us through the redemption of Jesus Christ. And it is freely available to all who place their faith in him. But don't be like Simon. Don't let your self-righteousness cut you off from the relationship you need with Jesus. And then secondly, don't be like Simon. Don't dismiss the transforming power of the gospel of grace in anyone's life, in anyone's life. Can you think of someone just now, perhaps the most unlikely person you think might ever become a Christian? Someone who's leading a reckless, sinful, wicked, apart from yourself. Daryl Bach asks, do we see sinners for who they have been or for what God can make of them? Do we see sinners for who they have been or what God can make of them? So don't be like Simon. Don't let your self-righteousness cut you off from a relationship you need with Jesus. Don't be like Simon. Don't dismiss the transforming power of the gospel of grace in anyone's life. And then thirdly, be like the sinful woman. Be assured that Jesus came to save sinners such as you and such as me. No matter how great your sin, Jesus' grace is even greater. 
No matter how deep the depths of your depravity, Jesus' love is even deeper. No matter how big your debt, Jesus' credit is infinitely bigger. Jesus has never turned away anyone who came to him for mercy and forgiveness. Never. And he never will. And he will never turn you away, whatever your sins, past or present. This is the reason he came into the world, isn't it? It was to show the love of God for us. To show us how much God loves us. This is love, not that we love God, but that God loved us and sent Jesus, his son, into this world as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And where did that atoning sacrifice happen? It happened on the cross at Calvary. And the cross is where our debt is paid in full. It was crossed out at the cross. It was nailed to the cross. Nailed to the cross by God. And here, here's the astonishing thing, isn't it? Nailed to the cross by God and nailed to the cross in God. In God the Son. You see, when God cancels our debt and forgives us our sins, he does not turn a blind eye to them. He looks to the cross to see the one who made an end of all our sin, Jesus. So be assured, Jesus came to save sinners like you and like me. And then fourthly, like the woman, be like the sinful woman and learn, as J.C. Ryle has said, that grateful love is the secret of doing much for Christ. Grateful love is the secret of doing much for Christ. Now, if you think about it, this woman would not have done this every time she saw Jesus. She wouldn't have had enough perfume, I doubt, to do that. No, this woman would not have reacted this way every time she saw Jesus, but don't let that weaken the power of the story. It's a story that shows us how the how a grasp of the Lord's love for us and an experience of the Lord's love for us is needed to prompt our love and our devotion to him. I hope you see that. It's what we need to grasp and to experience how much the Lord loves us in order that we too pour out our lives in love and devotion to him. The heart must be engaged for Christ, says Ryle, or the hands will soon hang down. It will always be the loving workman who will do most in the Lord's vineyard. How do you and I relate to Jesus? Have you seen how Jesus wants to relate to you? Well, may each of us here know what it is to love him because we have grasped and experienced his first great love for us. Amen. Father, here is love vast as the ocean. Here is love that kissed a guilty world in love. And we thank you for that overwhelming, liberating, life-saving, life-giving love that you have shown to us and given to us in Jesus Christ. Father, may each of us here know what it is by faith to lay hold of all that Christ is offering us, even today, to know the joy 
and the assurance of our sins forgiven, our debt cancelled. And even more than that, Father, credited with the righteousness of Christ himself. Father, help us to go from this place shaped, Lord, by the truth that we've heard and experienced today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now we're going to close our service uh, with an older hymn. I'm not sure we've ever uh, sung it here. Um, My Jesus, I love you. I know you are mine. Let me ask Ian to play through the, the tune before we stand to sing.